You were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville, Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Well, who can get so wrapped up in a story that they'll throw books across a room and scream out in either joy or anger, and everyone's too afraid to sort of ask, you know, which it is. Um, I can remember uh, my family listened to the Harry Potter audiobooks read by Stephen Fry. They're amazing if you haven't listened to those. And uh, one of my children, I'm not going to rat out which one, you can talk to them about it, as the story would be being read, would look at themselves in a mirror and make faces in accordance with what was happening in the story. And, and I, I got to where it was like, I don't even care about the story anymore. I like this story. Just watching them get so wrapped up in the story. I love the stories of the Bible. There's so many super weird stories in the Bible. Listen, next year, we're going to preach all the way through the book of Genesis. And if you're like, the Bible's boring, read Genesis. I dare you. Just read Genesis and then try to tell me the Bible is boring. And I don't just like the stories of the Bible. I like wondering about the stories of the Bible. I don't mean like, it's the Bible. I mean like wondering. Like I wonder, like the rich young ruler, was there ever a moment in his life when he was like, I have all the money and I'm still unhappy? Because everyone who's ever tried to get all the money has eventually found out that all the money can never make you happy. It can't fill up the hole. I, I wonder, like, Lazarus, he's raised from death. He's unwrapped. The grave clothes are unwrapped. But then he still just has to be Lazarus. Do you think he was ever like, you guys, can we talk about something other than me coming back from death? Like, I had a pretty good day today. You know, or I had a terrible day yesterday. Can we talk about that? No, you just want to hear about me resurrecting. That's all you care about. You don't care about anything else about me, right? Was he ever, you know, did he ever think stuff like that? There's a guy in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 20 and 21. You can look it up if you want to. His name is Beniah. He's one of David's mighty men, but he's not one of the three, it says. There were these three guys that were like the ultimate warriors, not from pro wrestling, but like actual ultimate warriors. But the story about Beniah is quite brief. It says that he killed an Egyptian who was not an insignificant man, which I assume means like it's a way of describing someone who's very large, you know, like he's not Goliath, but he's not an insignificant man. This is a big dude. The Egyptian had a spear. He didn't have a spear. He had a club. He attacked the Egyptian and whooped him, put him out of his misery. Not only that, but on a snowy day, he chased a lion into a pit and killed it. And I'm like, what did that lion do to him? What happened in his day where he was like, that's it, I can't take it anymore. Our pet's heads are falling off, and that lion has crossed it. That's the last straw. And the lion's like, I was just playing, man. I was just playing. And Benaiah's like, nope, I'm chasing you down. Because I got to say, it's one of the last animals I would chase. You know what I'm saying? I won't chase a house cat. And, And I, the, is the detail about snow really that important? that it becomes part of the word of God that lasts for all time. Clearly it is. It's an important detail. Anybody could chase a lion into a regular pit on an average day. Only a truly great warrior would chase a lion into a pit on a snowy day. 
and live to tell the tale, right? I mean, did the lion talk about his mom or something? I don't know. I don't know what happened, but I like to wonder. I like to read familiar Bible stories and be like, hmm, I wonder about this, and I wonder about that. And I call it just like making a little elbow room for myself. It's a bad place to draw really hard theological constructs for yourself, but it's a fun place to explore and remember that the people in the Bible were actually just regular people. They were, they were just people living their own lives and creating their own stories. And as they lived story to story to story, suddenly a whole life is constructed. And they have then stories to look back on and stories they get to talk about and stories they get to tell. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in understanding your own story. Hi, Phoebe. Oh, you want to give me a hug? Yeah, give me a hug. I love you. I'm a big believer in my own stories. Like, I like my own stories. I like telling my own stories. Sometimes when Sarah can't sleep, she's like, will you tell me a story? And so I just start telling her a story. And most of them are true. Sometimes I'll make one up every now and then just to see if she's still awake, you know. Um, I just like telling stories. I like thinking about how God has been forming me and who he's creating me to be and what he's, like, what he's setting me up for next and, you know, what's the next part of the story going to be and, and going through a dark part of the story and understanding that in every great story there's conflict and problems. There's moments when you think all hope is lost and nothing's ever going to be right and good again that everything's broken and it can never be made right. And then the simplest and smallest thing happens and the story begins to pivot and turn and change. I like living in some of that tension of like not knowing if you're gonna overcome or be overcome. In fact, stories is one of the ways that I use to motivate myself. Um, I've run a couple of marathons. Thank you. Um, <laughs> And the first one that I ran, I was under very strict orders from Fawn Dentleman. Uh, and uh, right before the marathon started, she got right in my face and poked me in the chest with her Iron Man finger and said, don't you walk. That's the edited version. But she told me not to walk. Don't walk. No walking. And I was like, all right, no walking. Let's go. No walking at mile zero sounds better than no walking at mile 20. And at mile 20, you still have a 10K to go. And I got to the end of mile 20, and I'd been running in this little group, like surreptitiously running in this group. They didn't know I was running with them because I was doing my own thing, but I needed some pacers. You know what I'm saying? Every tortoise needs a rabbit, and, and they were my rabbit. And, and we got to the end of mile 20, and mile 21 had this gentle uphill. Every person that I was running with peels off at the end of 20 to the side of the road, Half of them start puking, and the other half just get on the ground. They just, they just get on the ground. And I was at the end of mile 20, and I was like, I hate everything and everyone and life and running and walking and breathing. And I've never felt so miserable and hopeless and alone, and I just want to stop everything. And I, in that moment, here's, this is a true story. Here's how my brain worked. My brain worked like this. You know, there are people waiting for you at the end, and they're going to ask you, how did it go? And you can tell them, I got tired and I walked. Or you can tell them, I got tired and I kept running. Even though my mile pace dropped off to 37 minutes a mile, I was hopping 
with the thing. So that's a jog. That's not walking. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it was, I know at the end of this, I'm going to tell a story. I once preached a sermon at a one-year anniversary of a church, and it's one of the worst-received sermons I've ever preached in my whole life. I actually got booed at the end of the sermon because I told them, your church isn't going to last forever. It's going to be alive for however long God wants it alive, and then it's going to go the way of the dodo. Like every other church that has ever been planted, they don't last forever forever. The Apostle Paul is a better church planter than me. None of his churches are still around. And the point I was trying to make was not that your church should aim to last forever, but that your church should aim to be alive while it's living. I like stories. I like stories that make people laugh. I like stories that make people ache. I like stories that make people think. I like helping people see and discover their own stories and locating themselves in the story so they know where they are and they can understand a little bit better about what God's doing in them and who God's inviting them to be, to participate in the life of the kingdom. And I'm thinking about that because it's the end of the year and like a whole year is gone. All of a sudden, a whole year is gone. Do you remember back when we used to say, I'm gonna be writing this year on my checks for like three or four months. That's a story about a time when people wrote checks. They're not all good stories. I like bad stories too. A year's come and gone from our lives. Did you live with courage this year? Did you love people well? Did you become who you wanted to become? Have we become the church that our community needs us to become? All the small choices that we make and all of our responses to the circumstances that life puts us into builds together a story. And at the end, we're going to tell a story. I don't know if you know this or not, but you're going to be buried someday and everyone's going to sit around and tell stories about you. I found a Bible at Sarah's grandma's house once. Homer Black says on the front cover, it's super old. Open it up. It was presented to Homer Black by, I think, his niece or something or his aunt. Christmas in like 1907. I don't know, 1927. I can't remember, but it's super, super old. And I was like, wow, what a really cool Bible. Tell me about Homer Black. And Big Grandma said, he was the worst man who ever lived. And I was like, oh, Big Grandma, that is not nice. And so I looked at John, and I was like, John? Because he's like a really nice person. He goes, it's true. He was a worthless drunk who never did anything for anybody. And I was like, you know, someday somebody's going to find my Bible. Someday somebody's going to find something with your name on it, some relative of yours is going to be engaged or married to some person who doesn't know you and never knew you, and they're going to say, tell me about fill in the blank. What were they like? We've got a whole year under our belts, and I hope we're more than just a year older. And it's with that in mind, I want to turn towards 2024 and say, if you want to make New Year's resolutions, great. Go for it. That's fine. Most of them are abandoned by what the 17th drew, 
the 17th of January. Not the 17th month. There are only 12 months in a calendar year, despite what your checks indicate. That's fine. But let's set a course rather than setting specific every day, we're never going to fail kind of activities. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, we see uh, something pretty incredible is stated at the beginning, and a warning is stated at the end. And so I'm going to read the pretty incredible thing at the beginning, and I'm going to read the warning at the end, and then we're going to talk a little bit about it as we go through here. It says at the beginning, uh, talking about God, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He's given us everything required for life and godliness, not life in general. God has given you everything that is required for you to live your life and for you to be a godly person. How's that going? How did it go for you in 2023? And the scary part is at the end, It says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, well, this is a good part, they'll keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Useless and unfruitful. That's one of the dangers, being useless and unfruitful. And can I tell you, if I'm honest, I think those two words describe more of my and your Christian faith than any other two words, being useless and unfruitful, expecting everyone else to do and everyone else to give grace and show kindness. And we live with this sort of like restless shame that causes us to deflect and distract and attack anytime we're exposed for anything that we do that's less than what we're supposed to do attempting to justify ourselves. And why do we do that? Because it says (laughs) right there in the next verse, the person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. We've forgotten that we're to be people of grace. We're grace people, not great people. We're grace people. And as we remember what God has done for us, we're able to then give to others that which we ourselves have received. The danger is becoming useless and unfruitful and forgetting the cleansing of your sin. Becoming useless and unfruitful and forgetting the cleansing of your sin. Most of the dissatisfaction that I have personally experienced in my relationship with the Lord has been because I have been, not that I have felt, I have been, useless and unfruitful. And I was those things because somewhere along the line, I lost the thread of the gospel in the rhythm of everyday life. I started thinking it was about me and not about God. Verse three, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. Everything you need for life, every need, everything you need for godliness. And how has he given us this? Through the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. Through the knowledge of him who called us. We receive it through the knowledge of him who called us. Why? Jesus, uh, in John chapter 15, let me flip over there real quick. I'm using a handheld mic today. It's a prosperity gospel preacher tactic that I'm trying out. To see if the offerings increase. Just kidding. We're having mic problems. Uh, if you're a prosperity gospel preacher, take offense. Um, 
in verses 4 through 8 of John chapter 15, it says, uh, it says this, Jesus says, Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. God's plan for my life is to be useful and fruitful. God has given me everything that I need to be useful and to be fruitful. And the pathway to being useful and fruitful, to having real spiritual power, is simply knowing Jesus. Just knowing him. Investing time with him. I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but if you take a whole year and don't communicate with someone with whom you previously communicated, when the year ends, you will not be as close to them as you once were. <gasps> what? Is that how that works? But if you will invest small even amounts of time in real and honest dialogue with this person, what you will discover is that although not every conversation will be good, not every moment will be easy. As time passes by, you will have cultivated a deeper intimacy and a closer relationship. Well, what if in the manifold wisdom of God, he would make regular life work pretty much just like spiritual life works? If you are useless and fruitful in your spiritual life, if you're feeling ill-equipped for the life that God has given you. Can I tell you that the reason that it's cliche to give Sunday school answers is because most of the time those answers are true answers. They're true answers. The answer, the pathway is a closer walk with Jesus. The problem for us is we're looking for passages of Scripture to be amazed by instead of passages of Scripture to live by. We would rather be amazed than be obedient. And there is a world of difference. Over and over and over in the Gospels, we see Jesus do something, quite honestly, that's amazing. And the people are amazed, but not changed. It's wonderful to be inspired. I like being inspired, and I like being inspiring. I'm getting a hand cramp. I might have too much caffeine this morning. I can't tell for sure. It's wonderful to be inspiring. It's wonderful to be inspired. But all of the inspiration without some perspiration just leads to deflation. I just made that up. Just leads to disappointment. If you get inspired, but you don't apply any of the things that you have been inspired about, nothing happens. Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. And love is not theoretical, it's practical. Do you feel equipped for the life that God has given you? Where are you at in your own story? Are you escaping the corruption that is in the world, like verse 4 says? 
Do you believe you have everything required for life and godliness? Do you believe that you have that for your life? To be godly and alive in your own skin. Do you believe that you have that? So here's your New Year's resolution, if you're looking for one, okay? It says, for this very reason, in verse 5, make every effort. Let's start right there. Make every effort. What that means is, make every effort. Actually try. And don't just try once. You know what I'm saying? Don't just try once and then be like, I can't do it, and just give up. You try, and you keep trying, and you keep trying, and you keep trying. Every now and then, I sit down to the drums to see if I can play drums yet. I can't. The reason that I can't play drums is because I don't make every effort. I make almost no effort. At one time, I couldn't play guitar, and then I could play guitar. Nothing miraculous happened. I just began trying. At one time, I couldn't run a mile, and then I could run a lot of miles, and now I cannot run as many miles, but I can still run some miles. And what is the difference? Is trying is the difference. Making every effort. Make every effort. Make every effort. Every effort. When you run out of efforts, come and find me, and I'll give you some of my efforts, and we'll try together. In fact, it's better to try with others. It's better. So make every effort. To do what? To supplement your faith. To supplement it. Not to replace it. Not to earn it. Not to demonstrate and prove it. Not to validate it. To supplement it. My son Nathan takes supplements. It's just part of what he does. Caleb takes supplements. They're, they're young, strapping men who lift a lot of weights and want to get bigger. That's great. Right? That's great. But if you only take supplements and you don't eat any food, it's not going to work. If you only put effort in and don't have faith to begin with, it's never going to produce the life that you want. Because if you make it about your self-righteousness, instead of about grace, you're going to forget what God has done for you. You're going to be endlessly frustrated with yourself and endlessly either angry or disappointed in every other person who's alive. Jesus said, don't parade your self-righteousness around in front of others. The, the reason that he doesn't want you to parade your righteousness around in front of others is because you don't have any and you look ridiculous when you try to prove that you do. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've been this person. I know you've been this person. And chances are decent. Some of us are thinking of a person. Don't be a Pharisee to the Pharisees. Just fair warning, right? Make every effort to supplement. You've got faith. That's great. He says, take your faith and combine it with goodness. Because faith without works is dead. That's what James says. And our lives should be countercultural. Our lives should be cities on a hill. If we have faith, we should be overflowing first and foremost with goodness. There should be good inside of us that's bubbling out of every single hole on our body, out of our ears and our eyes and our mouth. It should be coming out of our pores. We should be sweating goodness. When people are around us, they should be able to say, I'm glad I was around that person. What a wonderful person. You have faith. Supplement it with goodness. Well, your goodness, supplement it with knowledge. You know why? Because people need sympathy, but they need more than sympathy. I have a friend who posted on Facebook the week, like maybe the day before Christmas. You don't need a savior. You're fine exactly as you are. And I was like, man, I need a big buzzer to go, ah. Because the angels said, we got good news. 
of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day a real good buddy who's just going to take you as you are. No, a Savior. A Savior. People need more than just goodness. They need more than just your sympathy. They need to know the situation that they are in and the solution to the problem. And your knowledge must be supplemented, of course, with self-control. Why? Because we don't reproduce what we know. We reproduce what we are. Which is why I try to never complain about my children. Because I'm just reproducing what I am. You know what I'm saying? It's like a mirror. It's why the people that you love drive you the craziest. Because you're like, oh, no. That thing is inside of me, and I don't like it. You have to couple knowledge with self-control because we reproduce what we are and because hypocrisy kills evangelism. And the most important thing on earth at any moment, as long as people are living, the most important thing on earth is that people would know love and follow Jesus Christ. That people would be saved from their sins rescued and brought into the family of God. That's the most important thing. And when we live counter to what we know to be true, we become hypocrites who cause a problem in the process of evangelism. We couple, we supplement, I should say, our self-control with endurance because culture beats strategy. Culture beats strategy. It eats it for breakfast. Have all the strategy you want for saying, I'm going to get up at this time every single day. I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. I'm going to work out. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to have only one cup of coffee. I'm going to consume less than 1,800 calories. I'm going to have a meaningful conversation with every member of my family. Between the hours of 4 and 6 p.m., I'm going to take a nice warm bath every night, and then I'll be in bed by 10 p.m. sharp every single day. And then on New Year's Eve, you stay up until 1. And you're like, well, not every day. I mean, that's ridiculous. I could start the next day instead of creating some big grand strategy. Focus instead on the culture. Focus instead on saying, what are the areas and places and characteristics that I want to be present and that I hope become true about who I am? You have to supplement self-control with endurance because consistency is what gets results. And there's a world of difference between being amazed and being obedient. And I can tell you, having a wife who shows up every day and loves me every single day, she would never have to get me another present or do a spectacular momentary thing for me, for me to know how loved I am. It's an everyday experience for me. And the cumulative effect of these 20 plus years of married life together has presented for me an insurmountable mountain of evidence. That's the culture of her love for me. And then when she does the amazing thing, it's like all bonus content. It's not to try to dig out of a hole, it's try to beautify an already impressive landscape. It's incredible. That's what endurance does. And endurance... With godliness. Why endurance with godliness? Because you're not the main character and neither am I. In other words, my endurance isn't really about me being able to endure. I'm not the story. 
only God gets the glory. Our godliness with brotherly affection. <laughs> I had a professor once, and uh, he was really smart. And at the beginning of class, he, he taught Greek at my college. Uh, and by the way, at the end of class, he told everyone in class, including me, please don't tell anyone that you know Greek. You don't know Greek. You only know enough Greek to be a heretic. So if you need to get anything wrong, just, I'm your guy, okay? Um, but at the beginning of class, uh, he said, any grace that you received at the cross is all the grace you will be receiving. Do not expect any in my class. And then he told a story about preaching at a church and after the service was over, a sweet little old lady came up to him and was like, you're so wonderful. I think you should come and be our pastor. And he said, lady, if you think that, then I know for sure that you have not been talking to Jesus. Because to be a pastor, you have to like people. And I don't like people. And I was like, wow. So you became a teacher. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Wow. Your walk with Jesus is a community experience. I don't want to steal too much thunder from Genesis, but I do want to say this. In the Garden of Eden, God creates man. Everything is absolutely perfect. God has perfect, unbroken fellowship with man, and man has perfect and unbroken fellowship with God. There is no sin there is nothing wrong in the world. Everything that has been made has been declared good. And God, with man alone, says, this is not good. You, alone with God, is not good enough. You're made for others. And no one will believe that you love them while they think that you don't even like them. Try to tell a mom, I really love your kids, I just don't like them very much. But do it from at least arm's length away. And he says, supplement your brotherly affection with love. <sighs> the call to us is to lay down our lives for one another. It's like there's this weird pull inside of being a pastor that doesn't exist in other jobs, in other businesses. In other businesses, it's like work really hard, grow the business, make as big of a profit as you can, keep expanding, keep pushing forward. In church, there's this weird push-pull where it's like, man, I really want to see our community one to Jesus, but we're not just about growth but we do want to grow, but that's not the important thing, and it's not because we want more money. But we do want to expand our opportunities to love and serve and bless our community and send more money to missionaries and church planters, but it's not just about that. And, and it's important for us to know that we, we want to be a people who are evangelistic and love each other and reach our community, but not for the sake of getting bigger, but also at the same time, I'm still just a human being, and I got I like sometimes the mosque down the street, they have these events, and they got like 150 cars. I'm not even kidding. And every time I see it, I'm like, help me, Jesus. You gotta help me. Because I'm like, we cannot let the Muslims outgain us. 
we got to beat the Muslims, you know what I mean? And not like in a holy war kind of a thing. I'm like, we got the way, the truth, and the life. We got the real story about Jesus. How are they getting more people than us? And then I'm like, we got to do some kind of a drive to get more people. Then I'm like, no, that's not what it's about. And I fight that, that kind of inner turmoil. I don't have great solutions to it yet. But I do want to say this. Love requires action, and love requires sacrifice, and you're going to have a hard time laying down your life for people you don't like. If you don't like the people, that's a problem. Brotherly affection with love. And if you like people, but you don't love people, you're keeping them at arm's length, and you're missing out on the best part. And you're like, well, well, what's the best part? Here's the best part. The best part of life, the very best experience in life that you can have is to make a truly great sacrifice for someone that you love. To cut into the things that you want and say, instead, I'm going to give you the things that you want. Instead of serving myself, I'm going to serve someone else. Someday when we are with Jesus, we will celebrate for all time what he did for us. And what he did for us is commemorated for all time. The wedding banquet of the Lamb at the Lord's Supper at the table where we celebrate the establishment of a new covenant. But make no mistake, it cost him something to do that. That was not an easy situation. He's sweating drops of blood because of the deep anxiety and fear that he felt about what was coming. He prayed, begging that God would do something else, create some other way. And yet, he was obedient. And while on the cross, what's his response to his tormentors? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if you think about your own life and you think about the people who have been most important to you and most impactful in your walk with Jesus, in your everyday experience of life, you'll discover that there are people who were a living example of the gospel and who were willing to sacrifice for you. That's the pinnacle of human existence. I'm not in any way encouraging people to go out and go like, I'm going to die for you today. Because I got to tell you, it's a whole lot easier to die for someone else than it is to be a living sacrifice for them. And what's God's deep desire for you? That you would avoid a useless and fruitless life. That when you come to the end of life, you'd be surrounded by people who you have loved, who you have forgiven, and who you have walked with through all kinds of seasons. People that you've sacrificed for and who have sacrificed for you. That's how you avoid a useless and a fruitless life. And what if you're here this morning and you're like, I feel about a billion bilometers from that experience. I got good news. I have the cut through. Like, 
I can, I can cheat the GPS code, and you can trust me on this one because I have a really reliable map. The pathway back is really simple. Remember. Because people who aren't doing this, it says, it says right there in verse 9, the person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has what? They've forgotten the cleansing of their past sins. The pathway back to a useful and fruitful life, it begins with this very first step, remembering what God has done for you. And as you look back on 2023 and as you look forward into 2024, I want to challenge you to start it this way, to finish out the year this way, to start the next year on this sure footing. Remember what God's done for you. And remember, the story isn't over yet. So if you're in a season of doubt or conflict or despair or frustration, the story isn't over yet. Remember what God has done for you, which is what unlocks everything, because if he would forgive me for sin, and if he would give me everything that I needed, then my job becomes a whole lot easier to walk out what I know to be true. We do this, will you just really quickly bow your heads with me? And I'm gonna invite you to take a moment to reflect. The first thing I want you to reflect on is this. Have you begun a relationship with Jesus? Have you begun walking with him? Have you given your life to him? In Acts chapter 4, it says that there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. And if you haven't done that, this is the morning to do it. Don't close out the year without the Lord. And those of us who have the Lord, just take a moment and consider what he's done for you what it cost him to do it for you. Don't move past that. Just stay there for a second. What has God forgiven you of? Is there anything he's still holding against you? The answer is he's forgiven you for all of it. He's holding against you none of it. which means that although you may never be a great person, you must be a grace person. The psalmist said, and this is the last reflection, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy are those who find him. And I want you to find yourself in the story today to be found by Jesus in the story today. To take one step towards him, one step of faith. Let me pray, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together one more time. As a reminder, this is the meal that Jesus gave his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed. It's a meal for followers of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Please ask somebody why they took the Lord's Supper today. Jesus said, 
as often as you do it, you're proclaiming my death. That's what we're saying when we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus died for me. That's what made me right. And as you take it today, I want you to think briefly, at least briefly, about what that actually means, that he died for you to pay for your sins. Don't let it fill you with shame. Don't let it fill you with regret. Let it fill your heart with gratitude. Because it pleased God to do it. And the greatest thing, the greatest human achievement is a truly great sacrifice for those whom you love. I'll be available to talk with you, to pray for you, to pray with you, to offer you a word of encouragement over by the tables. And then Brooke and Stephen will come back up and lead us in some worship. Let me pray. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for all the mornings. I still uh, can't believe I get to do this for a job. To love people, try to help them love you, and just as importantly, to be loved by people and to have them help me love you. There is no other place I would rather be. I'm grateful I get to close out this year with these people that I love. I pray your blessings on them. We're your people. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can come to the table when you're ready. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, 
you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.